Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. It always feels like it's been so ridiculously long when we haven't recorded for two days. <laughs> that's, that's pretty crazy. It's like a normal weekend. Like, why does it feel like I've been like living on another planet for the last two days? Uh, especially because I saw you yesterday, too. That's true. <laughs> that's like the most uh, hilarious thing. Uh, okay, let's get to work here. We're going to go in record order here in the Western Conference. And that brings us to the 46 and 22 Denver Nuggets have lost three straight, however, two at home where they were previously invincible. None of these two like real powerhouse teams either. They are owners of quite a bit of cushion still, though, in the West. Uh, their net rating is fifth in the NBA at plus 4.3, second on offense, 118.9. Their defensive rating is 114.6, that is 17th. They were projected to be actually until this recent recent losing jag to be in the high 50s and wins now they're still projected for 54 and 28 by both raptor and elo and of course they shall be making the playoffs what we got well yeah I, the context i think the place to start is with that losing bent that they have and this will connect with the main thing i wanted to discuss and so they you know lost at home to chicago in a game not only did they lose it but they lost pretty badly 117 96 to the bulls then they gave up 128 to the Spurs in a in a loss in San Antonio, came back home, gave up 122 in a close loss to Brooklyn. By the way, in that one, Jokic was only off the floor for nine minutes, and the Nuggets were outscored by 16 points during those nine minutes. That was not fantastic for them and still trying to find things to work. Jamal Murray ended up not playing the entire he, – he ended up being pulled during the second half. They said it's knee soreness. It doesn't sound like it's serious, but, you know, I'm still I'm still very cognizant of that. And yeah, and he was five of 19 and they tried doing some staggering with him and Jokic. Jokic is plus 14 in the game. Of course, they lost and uh, Murray was well into the negative in well, this one. And, and, and there's a little more rotation stuff I want to talk about, too, about this game. Sure. Uh, I mean, I, I'm i assuming that's Michael Porter Jr. related or is it? Well, no, um, I, I I mean, I didn't see this game. I watched a fair I, portion of it. OK, so so maybe you can elaborate on this a little bit more. But I thought it telling that Thomas Bryant, he played seven minutes in that Spurs game. Jokic played 39 minutes and Bryant was negative seven. Jokic was uh, negative two. I mean, Jokic was incredible in the Spurs game. He's incredible in the game against Brooklyn. And then Thomas Bryant did not play at all in the game against the Nets. Uh, but of course, they were negative 16 in the nine minutes. Jokic was off the floor nonetheless. And uh, they lost it by two at uh, 
to this Brooklyn team that is unsurprisingly I think been playing a little bit better like they had had some pretty bad shooting luck particularly uh, on defense uh, as they had struggled since the trade and now they've, I think they've kind of found their footing but uh, and, and also you should mention that Flacco Chanchar was back from a wrist issue so uh, yeah I mean you, you watched a little bit of this one anything that you took away from it I brought up Jamal Murray not finishing the game due to that knee soreness but the other big rotation story to me I, the Thomas Bryant thing is, is definitely interesting and I want to keep an eye on that was Michael Porter Jr. So MPJ was awesome in the first half, was scoring in bunches, hit, hit some threes, but also did a lot of damage inside the arc. And then he had a pretty disastrous third quarter on both ends of the floor, defensive miscues, shots weren't going in quite as much. And so he then, I don't believe he played at all until like the last 20 seconds of the fourth quarter. And Michael Porter Jr. has a stronger pedigree than most players who get that kind of treatment. Um, I saw some of the postgame comments and he seemed frustrated by it. He had a comment about how like, well, I only played 20 seconds at the end, so it was hard to be in a rhythm and, and some of that. And it, it there will be challenges for Michael Malone to navigate um, I actually talked about this a little bit with Sam Vecini on ga- on his Game Theory podcast. We did the whole thing on the Nuggets, and I'm going to talk about their defense in a sec. But there will be times, especially because Malone often comes at things from a defensive angle, where he's going to want to play his the players he trusts on defense more. But especially once Jamal Murray went down, I think at times you just have to understand that in order for teams to you know take to to create those seams, to create those opportunities, as great as Jokic is, you want to have at least a player or two out there that teams are going to defend more aggressively. So. Again, want to monitor that Michael Porter Jr. Not always the greatest at handling disappointment, so we'll we'll see where that goes. But more broadly, um, Denver, after giving up another 120 plus game here, they fall into 17th on defense, um, and they're getting they're getting shooting luck overall, um, seventh lowest opponent three point percentage. So generally, you think of that as more luck than skill. And they were they were sixth in both threes and long twos. Now they're seventh and tenth because the Nets did a pretty good job making both of those. And there's some good and there's some bad, I think, worth really delving into with Denver's defense. The general positive is that they've done well overall defensively in Jokic's minutes. It is roughly, a, even with all these recent struggles, roughly a, a 112 defensive rating that's well above average, 79th percentile. And as you would kind of expect over these years, the two things that the Den- that Denver has done really well in Jokic minutes has been defensive rebounding and avoiding fouls. And so you think about that and 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 also generally speaking Denver plays some of their better defensive players not Jokic they they pair them with him so Aaron Gordon plays a large portion of his minutes with Jokic KCP does as well Bruce Brown is more fluid just depending on who is and is not available and the other positive for Denver is that you're like oh well they're 17th and they're doing pretty well in Jokic's minutes he plays a billion minutes and barely ever is injured the biggest drag on their overall season-wide defensive numbers were the non-Jokic minutes early in the season. We did whole things on this, and that's improved somewhat, um, and it also matters less in the postseason because starters play a higher proportion of the time. So when you kind of narrow the sample to the relevant sample, I think that there are elements of it that you can feel better about. They do have capable defensive players in rotation. 
And one thing that I just found fascinating, um, I, I, I like to look at shot locations, opponent shot locations, just as a kind of like, okay, well, is there anything weird here? And Denver, they're basically middle of the road in opponent attempt frequency in every zone. Like they're just, they're not giving up a ton of threes. They're not giving up no threes. You know, if you go through all of the different cleaning the glass zones, they're just kind of middle of the road. This is a very, it's an offense that concedes very consensual, or sorry, sorry, very non-remarkable shots, which is fine. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that in and of itself. Yeah, and they have benefited some from opponents shooting locked mid-rangers, opponents shooting 41.5% per cleaning the glass. That is fifth best in the nba for a defense and opponents are seventh best in three-pointers so you might if you're starting a season right now expect those numbers to generally regress towards the mean uh however it's the opponent shooting at the rim that we still focus on a, a fair amount with this group it's a big problem and it's a problem that doesn't seem like it's going anywhere anytime soon on the season denver giving up 71.2 percent opponent shots at the rim that is really bad and that number is actually higher which is bad in Jokic's minutes 72.2 percent before sunday's loss to the nets uh that's seventh percentile in terms of percentage conceded which is not what you're looking for and building on that one of the cool splits that you can do on cleaning the glass now is you can look against you can look at it uh, how a team fares if you could split the sample into how they do against the either in offensive rating defensive rating or net rating i use net rating for this the top 10 the middle 10 the bottom 10 and this will come up with a couple teams that we talked about on this pod and denver against top 10 opponents they're below average in defense um they're uh 17th overall in defensive rating just against top 10 opponents and most of the seriously competitive teams are well above that you could think about you know teams like the the celtics and the Cavs. they're they're well above that but the good news is that not defensively that denver scored incredibly well against those teams so they're still you know positive in net rating and all that but not being able to stop those teams is something that you and i have been concerned about this whole time and so being roughly average against those teams probably isn't good enough yeah it's concerning but yeah i, I still as much as denver has lapped the pack record wise although again they are falling back a, a little bit here and i imagine also that if they have things wrapped up they'll rest Jokic some and probably lose some games down the end too potentially but it's just important to remember that yeah they're way better than the rest of this west but the rest of this west has had uh, all these continuity and injury issues and trade stuff and you know obviously if you started a season with the phoenix suns being healthy like they probably healthy would put up a better stats than this Nuggets team would over the course of a full season you would think so yeah this is it just needs to be said this is not I mean they're even you know fifth in net rating right now for the season and that's you know with Jokic missing almost no time being relatively healthy throughout the course of the year like Porter missed a about a month Murray's been in and out some with the the knee injury well here here I can I could rattle it off with their starting five so the the Nuggets have played 67 games this season Jokic 59, Gordon 55, Murray 53, MPJ 50, and KCP 64. 
So that's that's pretty good. Like you know, they're they're their absences, some of them significant, but relative to everybody else, yeah. that's unless survivable. you're the Kings or the Knicks, you can't ask for much more. Right. And so we also got the return of Vlatko Chanchar from a wrist issue. He played six minutes in the loss, and I think that might have been a part of the idea behind Malone doing a different rotation. Was like wanted to see the guys that he could trust. Yeah. Brooklyn and, and, also. And Bro- Brooklyn is smaller, though. Brooklyn did play either Noel or Claxton for well, I think thirty five. They, but they they switched it out at a couple interesting points. One was Claxton got his fourth foul in the third quarter, and they went. They didn't go to Noel. They went to a smaller lineup, and it actually did pretty well. That would that helped bring them back. Brooklyn had a thirty seven eighteen quarter, and then they didn't really go to Noel as much in the fourth either. And so if you if Malone wanted to think of it as kind of like a matchup matching thing, which I don't think he did because Bryant didn't play in the first half either, right. then then you could you could think about it that way. Well, this would be the second time in three seasons, if this trend continues, that the Nuggets gave up multiple second round picks for a backup center and then just stopped playing the guy. They did that for JaVale uh, two years ago as well. Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences. Hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz, find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house, get that 100 night trial. They're 10 to 15 year warranty, depending on the model. And there's never been a better time to try a Helix Sleep mattress because they are offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to slash capspace. We talk about all the time here on the program. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. This is their best offer yet. I can attest to that since I've been working with them for nine years. And it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing. But the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice 
heavy material that'll keep you warm it's not too hot as well so i was able to wear it in the car not be too hot step out of the car and still be warm enough when i was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that i didn't feel like i needed my jacket even when it was cold outside these things are amazingly durable i proposed to my wife wearing an american giant hoodie in the grand canyon almost seven years ago i still own that same hoodie i still wear it constantly and american giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout please remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us anything else on these guys let's move on to the memphis grizzlies memphis is now 40 and 26 four and three since the last 1560 of course dealing with the absence of john morant they're still third in net net rating clean the glass version uh, plus 5.2 they're 10th in offense and a robust second in defense and both 538 models project that the grizzlies to finish second in the west 51 and 50 wins there of course is plenty of still sacramento king skepticism within their models and of course they're going to make the playoffs nate where do you want to start well dylan brooks uh, has been in the news quite a bit with his spat with Draymond green and then he said that he was disappointed that Kyrie irving wasn't playing for the mavs and Kyrie actually had some relatively sage quotes uh, on the matter and didn't really want to engage with, with brooks it basically said like hey you know go out there compete like of course he's a competitor he wants to go against the best but you know that you don't need to like make it personal out there uh but dylan brooks more interestingly uh, and you know draymond made some comments about how he hurts his team and uh brooks had a a well pretty good rejoinder that uh yeah at least i didn't punch a teammate which uh yeah if you're gonna get into a public spat draymond you should, you might want to have a few fewer skeletons in the closet i mean we're, we're gonna have to see how but draymond's line about how the dynasty starts after you depending on where this goes could be it could be one of those things that lingers we'll have to see well so of course the criticism of brooks and never more salient than this year is his offensive role and he is at let me just double check this to update it because this is a in case it's in case it somehow got less terrible yeah so uh one dylan brooks has a 48.2 percent true shooting on on 22 usage right now and so i wanted to delve in more to how much is that hurting you on offense that's basically nine points below the league average and above average usage percentage on uh, that's not amazing uh so why is uh, what, what sorry so one bad? quick note on brooks before i get there using yeah. the basketball reference version of usage he was at 28 8 last year and 26 1 the year before so it is significantly below those years but it's still way higher than you'd expect for a player who's this inefficient who his career high in true shooting is 50 three percent is for year yeah and we'll recall that last year he basically didn't play at all with john morant that two years ago desmond bain was a bench player and jaron jackson basically didn't play 
all year. And I think the most of the Brooks defenders would say, well, hey, who else is supposed to create shots in this team? And even, you know, they had Bain this year, missed uh, time as well. And Brooks was out at the beginning of the year when Bain was really lighting it up so that he again, didn't overlap with him too much. You know, John Morant is out. Brooks will often play without Morant. Uh, but Brooks has uh, 11.7% of the time on offense that he possesses the ball. That's fourth on the team among high minute guys. For some reference there, Job possesses the ball 45% of the time. Tyus Jones, 35% of the time. And Jones and Job will play together some too. Uh, and then Bain is third on the team at 17.7. So he's really, you know, that's about what you would expect. He's fourth on the team there. Uh, the scoring usage is pretty high, 20%. Now, the one thing you can at least say about him is that he never turns it over, generally because he shoots it before he can turn it over. By contrast, his playmaking usage is also terrible. 6% playmaking usage and 2% turnover usage. So the total usage is 28.3. But that scoring usage is still also fourth on the team behind Ja, Jaron, and Bain. And so you would say, hey, is there really anybody else they have with the skill set to create those shots, especially considering that those guys are out of the game sometimes, that they have missed time. I, If you just look at the skill set of the players on the team, maybe not their efficiency, you might say, hey, like who who else can create uh, these shots? And like his usage is down this year. Uh, so that, that's, uh, that's maybe a, a reasonable criticism. And I wish we had it. I don't think we have this available anymore, anywhere of just like that NBA matchup data where you can say hey what is this individual player's usage when he's on the floor with Bain and with Ja and with Jaron and I would imagine it's a fair amount lower but nevertheless so so you can maybe the people who want to just like kill his decision making there is a need to create shots a lot of the times when he is on the floor but perhaps the bigger issue, of course, is that he is creating shots, but he's doing it terribly. And you might say at that point, literally anyone else on the team creating a shot, you might get something better than that. Uh, he is processed that's 51% quality of shots, uh, e-field goal percentage. So just based on how contested they are, where he's taking these shots, you would expect him to shoot 51% e-field goal percentage. That would be about 20th percentile in the league. But you take that terrible expected outcome on his shots most of the guys who have bad expected outcomes like seth actually has this note in his sheet that a lot of the guys who are really good have bad shot quality because they're capable of making those shots and so they outperform that shot quality brooks on the other hand way underperforms even his terrible shot quality 5.6 percent epo percentage below what would be expected and so that means that he is subtracted 92.3 points per assess estimates with his shot making or lack thereof and that's based again on the fact that this is just how well you're making the shots that you're generating that's not even counting the fact that the shots generating themselves are inefficient danny would you care to guess the five players at the bottom of the league i think brooks is third from the bottom the five players at the bottom of the league who have subtracted the most points from their team with the lack of shot scotty barnes Ooh, good start got him he is uh scotty barnes is fifth worst Okay, because the other thing is it kind of has to be reasonable volume. I was thinking about Lou Dort because I know he's missed a billion layups this year, but I don't know that he shoots enough. Well, I I will prevent you from wanting to flagellate yourself because Lou Dort is actually the worst. Wow. In the NBA. And actually, it's kind of funny. Like Lou Dort, he's like strikingly similar to Dylan Brooks. I mean, they they generate their shots a little bit differently, but they're both great, rugged, on-ball defenders who can play up but don't necessarily generate 
generated tons of blocks and steals and also shoot the ball way too much and way too inefficiently and sort of don't but obviously Lou Dort hasn't been as prominent of a team and uh he's been encouraged to explore the studio space but uh yeah so he's in there yeah I need two more those are my two thoughts I'm gonna walk off like George Costanza you can say the other two (laughs) well one of them's pretty easy I said what I said Nate Russell Westbrook oh yeah that I could I could have gotten that and uh Paolo Banquero is oh he actually has been quite inefficient very high usage uh, this year Uh, obviously we believe he has a a bright future uh here's some other stats here on how Brooks has compiled this when he finishes around the room 48 percent contested finishing that's not like the absolute worst like there are some guys in the low 40s on that like the lamello ball zone like he's a little bit below uh, above that at least but he's got the short arms he's not very athletic he kind of relies on a lot of just like difficult running hooks over his shoulder along the lane line only 44 percent on twos overall takes 5.3 long twos per 100 possessions and he's making only 37 percent of those and you know long twos is twos outside of the restricted area in cess parlance but outside of 15 feet now this is only nine percent of his shots but he's reliably been you know over 40 percent on these shots shooting only 28 percent this year interestingly he actually has a much better shot mix this year analytically with 42 percent of his shots coming from three but he's just has been way off on the twos that he is generating his finishing at the rim is also way down this year overall contested non-contested he shot 68 percent around the rim last year that's down to 60 percent this year and then from three he's really struggling 31 percent and that's about the same whether it's on self or team created spot up threes and so he, he's a little worse than you would I, I expect both in terms of the jumper given his historical averages and the three-point shooting uh because he's made 38 percent career of his uncontested threes well actually no i'm sorry i i let me restate that uh from three-point range i don't know that you would expect it to change that much because he's actually right about his career average in terms of uncontested threes maybe you'd expect it to get a little bit better um lebron 38 percent same this year but only 41.5 percent of his career threes uh are or is his threes this year excuse me yeah this is if i'm gonna list a bunch of stats or i should get them right only 41.5 percent of his threes this season are uncontested so that's only in the 25th percentile and you see guys who are really good shooters there again in which of course uh he is not and for example desmond bain who's a much better shooter obviously uh he actually takes 43 percent of his threes this year uncontested so desmond bain is is getting a larger percentage of his threes uncontested than dylan brooks and that's bain of course is an unbelievable shooter at desmond bain shoots 45 percent career on uncontested threes uh which is pretty insane uh brooks also and takes 51 percent overall of his shots being self-created again the criticism being there most guys on this team can't really self-create particularly if the other team is switching that's like so like a tyus jones maybe you can create a pick and roll but if there's any kind of a switch or just a late clock iso situation you know brooks a lot of times is the only guy on the floor who can create anything in those situations with this group and but his uh 44 e field goal percentage on self-created shots is 417th in the nba but 
his team created e field goal percentage is 47%, which also is completely terrible. So that's no matter how he's generating the shots, he's really, really inefficient. How about if we look at some of the play type data? His transition efficiency, I thought this is a, a very interesting window into the way that Brooks plays and probably the place you would point the most to his poor decision making. 0.86 points per possession in transition. Usually when you see a number like that, it might be a guy who pushes the ball up a lot but mostly passes and so turnover percentages are higher in transition so he's not scoring but he passes it but brooks uh, not really a big turnover guy the problem is that he takes a lot of jumpers off the dribble in transition and he's only eight out of 30 on those so that that's like you need to be at that's at the point in transition you know you always want to get a good shot in transition and like you, one of the big things that's changed about the nba is hey if you're open in transition you have the license to shoot it now because the whole point of basketball is to get an open shot and so it doesn't matter when in the shot clock it comes but brooks i think is one of the few guys where you're like hey you probably should settle down on some of these and then when you look at what the shots he generates in pick and roll he's 16 of 47 on plays where he attacks the basket out of high pick and that's basically shooting 33 percent going to the basket in pick and roll and then jumpers off the dribble he's under 33 percent out of high pick and roll as well so he just has been one of the more inefficient players in pick and roll again just the fact that he doesn't turn it over but of course he doesn't pass and uh so that's a big part of how he doesn't turn it over so the question that would then become like okay and and again he's a very valuable defense player like they absolutely should re-sign him they just their defense just won't be good enough without him i think unless they have replacement options available so could he move into a smaller role well i just i think it would just be so ridiculously small because he's not even if he's going to get like i don't see how he's going to generate more spot up shots perhaps simply by just having the ball less and standing outside the arc you get more but like if you look at his mechanics danny like he kind of turns his right foot inside he really has to load up he doesn't really shoot it he shoots like a jump shot or he takes like this deep set shot from three that takes a while to get off so he doesn't really have the footwork to shoot on the move coming off of screens um you know again maybe if they he was just spotting up more they could get him the ball there he could focus on that more but if you just look at the way his results have been like yeah i think he if he played like this his role he could be more efficient just making more of the shots that he's already taking like he is below his clear career averages there but he's just not that kind of on the move spot up shooter who can like move into more of an off ball role effectively you wonder just like i mean could he become a more active off ball mover some of those types of stuff but it, it, it is a a, a question and also with brooks i mean he's had opportunities in a variety of different kind of like situations within the grizzlies ecosystem you could go through the the phases that this team has gone through and a lot of these elements have just stayed the way that they are and brooks at this point this is age 27 season so you, you don't necessarily expect the stripes to change too far there anything else you want to talk about Grizzwise? Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all of my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed 
to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can customize things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets, and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. No, let's get to a game that took place without Kevin Durant, unfortunately. But it was between the number three and number four teams in the West. The latest news on KD, it, it sounds like that uh, initial report might have been a little bit hyperbolic. Again, it was just a fear that he would miss that time. I think once he had the MRI, uh, the swelling went down a little bit. So uh, he's due to be reevaluated with that ankle issue suffered in warmups in three weeks. And that's the official saying from the team. But then both Woj and Shams reporting that he might be out two to three weeks, which is interesting when's the last time a guy actually made it back before the reevaluation? so we'll see on that i mean we we have had some times where you know this uh injury timeline thing has become like its own currency now in the information bartering business and so sometimes that can be incorrect and the team i mean i, I would if he plays before that reevaluation date that would be a surprise to me regardless of the reporting um but the suns are 37 and 30 now after the loss to the kings yesterday that was at home 128 119 the kings have just been putting up a billion points point every game here and the suns are ninth in the nba net rating plus 1.5 17th on offense and seventh on defense i mean that seventh on defense to me given the personnel that's been available most this year is pretty impressive they project for the four seed per raptor i'm not sure how they are pricing in the kd situation there uh elo likes them for 45 wins raptor 46 both of those would be the four seed 98 percent chance the playoffs per raptor 97 per elo will fold in the king stats in a little bit here but you watch this one what were your big takeaways as is often the case now it was a very fun sacramento kings game a lot of a lot of back and forth action and the first thing that really stuck out to me um it was the persistence i i think was a good word for it for from sacramento like sabonis is a good example of this like it wasn't his greatest offensive performance you know five of ten from the field um, had some trouble with the with the Suns, whether it was Aiton or just kind of guys getting on him, but grabbed some big offensive rebounds, was contributing and passing. And it was like that overall. Like the, the, this isn't necessarily the most loaded second unit. Like right now, it's basically the guys who are coming off the bench for Mike Brown. Davion Mitchell, Malik Monk, Kessler Edwards, who hits a big shot. Kessler so yes, Edwards. Yes, a former Salary Brooklyn dumped. Um, a former Brooklyn Net was pivotal in this King Suns game. It just wasn't that one. Um, and then Trey Lyles, I thought, was really big in his 20 minutes. He came in late again because he was, you know, he was one one of their better players in the game. And then I continue to like Shemaze Metu. I think that he's a an intriguing defensive playmaker. Doesn't really have the pop for me to be like a 
starter, but as somebody who can make a difference off the bench, who can give you give you those those minutes, disrupt things a little bit. He had two pick sixes in the fourth quarter, which centers getting pick sixes, not always the most common thing in the world. And so it really was that team effort. This was not a dominant De'Aaron Fox performance. This was not a dominant DeMontis Sabonis performance. I thought the best player on the floor pretty clearly was Devin Booker, who had 28 in 39 minutes. He was, was hitting shots from all over. And I think that was another one of the big takeaways for me is that I'm thrilled with how well Sacramento's done. And I think that they can be competitive against certain teams in a playoff series. They're going to have a good enough seed where they will have home court advantage in all likelihood. And we don't have any semblance of an idea who they'll play yet. But they also just don't have the only person who like they kind of have to guard Devin Booker is is Davion Mitchell, who I thought in the times that they were put put on each other, I, I thought Mitchell did a credible job. But Davion Mitchell comes off the bench. He's very limited offensively most of the time. And so you can't really do much with, I mean, you don't want Herter there. Fox, like, it, he can do that, but it's just not necessarily the best use of him. Fox is like a lot of offensively, like a lot of offensively capable guards as his, as his role there has grown. His defensive impact has gone down. DeJounte yeah. has and had Fox, similar. like, at the end of games, like, he was guarding sure. Paul George at the end of those those Clipper games. So I, it's possible, I think, for him it's to just more minutes ramp minute. it up at the end. But yeah, throughout the game, it's, it, that's not going to be his yeah. role, and, it, it's not a great spot for Harrison Barnes or, or Keegan Murray either. Um, it's and- an interesting point that you make that as much as we kind of focus on, all right, who's going to guard Kawhi Leonard, who absolutely torched them, you know, and Barnes Barnes is going to do that, you know, or going to guard KD in a Sun series as well. And they, you know, Barnes, even Keegan Murray, like those guys at least have like enough size to not just be total roadkill in those matchups. I mean, they're not, neither of them are stoppers, but they're at least like, you know, not just going to be overwhelmed physically. Whereas, yeah, they're really, who, in their starting lineup guards a Devin Booker because Murray Barnes like those guys don't have the agility to get through a lot of the off-ball action that Booker is going to run uh and so that that's going to be you know just keeping up with him off the ball or in transition like that's going to be a major problem the first note that I have on this game and it was something that really stuck out throughout it was I completely understand the Phoenix Suns taking a lot of jump shots they have better jump shooters than basically everybody even without Kevin Durant you have Booker and everything else but against Sacramento a team that is notoriously porous on defense and that can give up a fair amount around the basket as well I thought they were settling way too much and and no player settles quite like DeAndre Ayton who in the first like eight minutes of the game, he didn't really do anything around the basket, didn't really get fouled, which he never basically does. They did better at the end of the first quarter and then had some better moments at at other points in the game. But Aiden just, you know, getting getting to a getting a, a ball when they get, were pressuring on Booker and then just taking a free throw line jumper. It's like, yeah, you can make those at a better rate than most guys, but you're not putting the other team into difficulty. And part yeah, of the reason why he, this team, too, you would think like if he takes a dribble from that spot and, and is able to lower his shoulder, you know, he should be able to work into it better. Precisely. And an, you, you also saw the like the not only the absence of Durant, but also just like the guys they traded in the direction deal in terms of who they had to lean on the rotation and like i mean it won't be this extreme in games that matter hopefully but Tory Craig, Ish Wainwright, Josh Akogi combined to take 16 three-pointers in this game. That's roughly half of what the Kings as a team took. Paul had another nine. He was two of nine. And like yeah, those, another- those guys are going to be way up there in the Okoro index, which is basically the, like 
like who takes the highest quality, most wide open three pointers. It also ended up, I, I would say the game was pretty well settled at that point, but the last gasp for the Suns, they were down five with, I think it was about 30 seconds to go. And the Kings pretty much willingly gave up a Josh Akogi corner three. He biffed it. And then Torrey Craig, full hustle for the offensive rebound, but he split two free throws and then they were down four point. They were down four points with like 20 or 15 seconds to go at that point. And so it's basically over. You play the foul game and that's how the Kings ended up winning by nine. But there will be playoff games that are decided by Torrey Craig, Josh Akogi, potentially a Schwain Wright three-pointers because there are going to be players like that in the rotation in part because you need their defense out there on the floor, especially with Chris Paul looking better physically but still not being that guy that he was a couple of years ago defensively to me. And also just because of the basic concept of threat assessment, if they're playing Booker and Aiton and Kevin Durant, you're, you're going to want to make life harder on those guys. And the tolerable sacrifice is to give up driving opportunities, to give up shooting opportunities to those more limited players. That's why I've been intrigued by the idea, theoretically, of TJ Warren getting some of that rep just because he can do more with those opportunities than the other guys. But let's see whether he can actually do that. Another thread of this one, I think some of it is just because he was hitting a bunch of shots. I I brought up how they took a ton of jumpers. Terrence Ross was also an important part of that. He took 10 threes in 23 minutes of action. And Terrence Ross. That's actually like, that's good. They've, I've always felt like they didn't take enough threes in previous years. So to really have someone who's going to come in and bomb, I mean, if he's going to make them, we'll see. Yeah. I I think that is useful for them to just have someone who's like really hunting threes on this team. Now, less said about the other end, the better. But that's, I mean, if he's shooting it well, like that, that does add an element for them. Ross has also gotten some steals in the King, in the Suns last few games, including two in this Kings game, but he's not a good defensive player. Like he, he does those kinds of moments usually it's it's more in the gamble fashion and there may have been some context i didn't catch but ross playing 23 minutes and damian lee playing four definitely struck out to me another rotational thing money williams went to jock landale in the first half that didn't go particularly well so they tried bismack beyond but the second half that went better um you, the having multiple options is useful they only needed seven minutes out of campaigns. So they were able to kind of do a patchwork quilt, especially with Ross taking on a lot of the burden. So for Phoenix, you know, in a game where they're missing the player that we expect to be their best player, I think this is a it is a reasonable outcome. I think it's a nice a nice win for the Kings in a game where their star players didn't give up to the standard that we've that we've been for them. And I mean, I'm sure it was also like I mean, I was excited to see Kessler Edwards hit a huge three at the end. Like that was pretty cool too. And so that some capable depth players getting out there a little bit for the Kings. I mean, this wasn't the best Malik Monk game, but I thought he had that crazy one against the Clippers, but I thought he did well overall. You mentioned the rotational notes for the Kings, or I'm sorry, for the Suns. TJ Warren has been with the team since uh, he made his debut on February 14th and uh, has played six games. He has not played more than 13 minutes, and he was regularly getting in the 20s for the Nats, uh, although his minutes had dropped uh, once they got healthier. As, uh, yeah, as time had gone on. But we thought he would be, so, I thought he might even be in the closing lineup for them. Obviously, Monty Williams has not been particularly pleased uh, with what he's seen it from him to go to be, and especially considering like KD is out right now too. It kind of plays the same position as TJ Warren. I mean, Warren is certainly a better shooter than some of these other guys. You know, doesn't give the same as probably Torrey Craig or and certainly not a Kogi at this point in his career. But I think it is interesting that they're, 
where he really has not figured for them at all. I mean, the way it's trending right now, you figure he's probably not even going to be in the, the playoff rotation. And then Chris Paul, he had a nice game inside the arc. He was four of four and two of nine from downtown. He has definitely increased his three-point attempt rate quite a bit, even as his usage has dropped. He was at basically a career low since his days in New Orleans in terms of three-point attempts for 36 minutes last year, as good as he was. And now he actually has increased the, that by about 50%. So he's back now, at least where he was in OKC. Of course, I would expect that to rise more. But he's oh. clearly, when you watch them, he's concentrating on being a little more aggressive shooting the ball, both because he's uh, had some struggles inside the arc, although I think he looks better than he did earlier in the season now. And also because I think he understands that team really just leaving him wide open at the arc and he needs to be aggressive. On, on that, that, the, yeah, on that front, um, Chris Paul, for a while now, he's been in the proportion of his threes that are assisted. He's been at the most extreme in those Rockets years. It was 25% assisted, which is very low. Um, but then even in his early son's years, 41%, he's now up to 51% of his threes being assisted. You know, the, the shift in his role, also Devin Booker taking on more and those shots you have to be aggressive on because if they're conceding catch and shoot threes to you, the offense is going to really turn. Um, a couple other Kings points before we move on. Sabonis, I talked about how he's kind of having to pick his spots more often. One of my favorite moments, he, Sabonis got Booker on him I, I, in the interior and just immediately worked through him for free throws. That is exactly what Sabonis has to do. He's been He's done a good job of that overall this year. Um, yeah, that, I've always really appreciated that about his game. And I think in some ways, the fact that he's kind of all left hand and it's not the most artful post-ups, like compared to say someone like Aiton, that's almost makes it easier for him in those circumstances where he's just like, he knows he's bigger. He knows he, that he's tougher. He gets a smaller guy on him. He's just going to go right through him for a layup or a foul every time. Like that's what you should do when you have that level of side and the advantage. Mike Brown did a big challenge in the late third. It's one of those more about high EV. I wasn't, when I when I saw it live, I wasn't sure it was going to succeed, but then eventually you caught that the, so it was Davion Mitchell got called for an offensive foul on a drive to the basket, that the defender was in the restricted area, so it turned an offensive foul into an and one, which is a pretty big swing. Brown was successful on it. That yeah, kind he's of had co- some bad challenges this year, yeah, too. So he has, but him, that one was good. See him turn one um, into, yeah, I mean, any anytime you can challenge and you can add, I think even a guaranteed two points, but uh, certainly three, doesn't matter matter what point in the game it is you got to take that up it, it worked out for them that kind of that was right around the time of a big Malik Monk run at the end of the third he ended up with 18 points in 25 minutes and Monk was actually a good a good guy to talk about this I love how much Sacramento runs with their second unit like they don't necessarily have great creators you know a lot of the time Fox is in there for some of this because they do do a partial stagger with Fox and Sabonis but grab and go encouraging guys to take advantage like there were times where Trey Lyles was pushing it a little bit Malik Monk had some good pushes and, and Davion and so like that is your best advantage. You know, the, the, you're going to be able to, to make life for, and these guys, you know, some of them played more minutes because they were doing well. Edwards played 26, Monk played 25, but you have like, I mean, encouraging bench players to go hard because you really do get rewards from that. And 
it frustrates me when teams play slowly in those units when those guys aren't going to necessarily log that many minutes. So the Kings, one of the criticisms is their inexperience. I think a lot of people aren't going to favor them, whether they're the three seed. I mean, if they're the two seed, then maybe we'll have to talk, obviously. Uh, and obviously, I, I want to see what that matchup is, the health status for whoever they're playing. A, a big advantage of being the two seed also is that you had a week off when the other team had to play, uh, Though you don't get when you're the three seed. Though as the two, your opponent only played one game. They played one game. They won that game. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's fair. I guess it would be on the, yeah, I mean, the, the opponent would have had I generally three days off being either, well, they play on either the Tuesday or the Wednesday. Um, so how have the Kings looked when they've gone against elite competition as opposed to uh, against worst? The reason why Sacramento is doing so well, why they're 40 and 26 on the year is because they are destroying bad teams. They're 21 and 6 against teams that are in the bottom 10 of cleaning the glasses net rating they despite being having the fifth worst defensive rating against bottom 10 teams they have a plus 9.1 net rating because they're scoring 125 points per 100 possessions against those teams they are that, number that's a batshit insane number by the way that's like better than the nuggets with Jokic on the floor uh numbers well an, another way of putting that they're number one in offensive rating against the bottom 10 by four points per 100 possessions like they are miles and miles ahead of everyone else the kings are pretty much dead even against the middle 10 in net rating um and they they do have a positive record so they're actually outperforming their net rating against those teams and then against the top 10 19th in net rating and the bigger drop off is actually on the offensive end defensively they're okay you know i think they're like 17th 20th something in that range but they're 13th on offense we're getting into smaller sample size don't want to do too much and nate i have a trivia question for you oh yeah yeah there are only four nba franchises that against the top 10 teams in net rating just those games have a plus two net rating or better who are they well i mean it would be kind of cheating to just say who you who the the teams are at the best net rating uh i'm gonna say the cleveland cavaliers seventh so not them Ah! Celtics? Number two. Okay. All right. Need three more here. Box? No, they're sixth. Mm. I I had thought them too, but I think it might be the sample of when those games occurred. Yeah, there's gonna be some surprising teams. Um Hells? No, the Pelicans are actually um they're eight and sixteen against those teams. They've had a rough go. <laughs> close, close. Um all right, I uh, Grizz. Yes, they're third. Okay, that's interesting, because I think the Grizz is like the ones who are blowing out. They're the ultimate bad team killers as of the last time I checked it. Yeah. All right, so I need two more, one more? Two two more. They're both in the Western Conference. Uh, That's that's interesting. Phoenix. No, Phoenix is actually, um, they have a negative four net rating, negative 3.8 against those teams. Yeah, it's tough. I'm picking these teams where I'm like, oh, hey, maybe like when they were healthy, they had a good Mm -hmm. stretch. Um, One of them, I would be stunned if you got it quickly. The other one you could guess. Well, we know it's not Sacramento. Correct. Clippers? No, the Clippers are eight and seventeen against the top ten. They have one. Yeah, of, they have I the fourth worst. All right, net- I'm, I'm going to give up here before okay. I embarrass myself any further. Numero, but all by the way, the Clippers. Uh, this is actually one of the things that I was I was digging. I almost put this in the Clippers section. Ne- they neg- negative nine point three net rating is fourth worst of all NBA teams against the top ten. Again, there might be sample issues here. I don't know. Number one yeah. in the whole league, Denver Nuggets plus three point one. Number four, despite having a losing record against these teams, the Dallas Mavericks. 
plus 2.2. I was just like, yeah, they've had like a couple of weird blowouts. Um, well, yes, they have. The King stats here quickly. Sure. Uh, they are 40 and 26, tied for the number two seed, six and one. Since we last checked in on them, they're on fire. Uh, plus 2.5 net rating, eighth in the NBA, number one on offense. And that's by uh, 0.7 points per 100 at this point. And they are 25th on defense. They project for the three seed per Raptor, 47 win. Elo likes them for 49. That's more based on how they've been playing recently and uh, yeah i mean they should be in uh, it's interesting that the grizz are still projected to finish both uh, either four or two games ahead of them and i think the grizz actually might be only one ahead of them in, but four in raptor so yeah this will be really interesting i mean they're they're playing well though and they i mean again they're very healthy they got a lot of continuity like that that goes a lot in this shit show of a regular season who's up next here the la clippers are next in record yeah they had this big event where they called in all their chips for the mandated promotional appearances and they got basically the whole team there for the intuit dome the final beam and it's due to open for the 24 25 season la 36 and 33 they lost five straight and then they won three straight after that they lost their first five with westbrook now they're back into they are 24th in the nba though at net rating negative 1.1 at one point they were five games over 500 but they've been below that since but now winning the three straight to get to three games over 500 again 24th on offense 14th on defense but that much has changed since uh, really the last two months or so they've been pretty good on offense and turns out Kawhi Leonard is pretty good on offense and uh, Zubats has kind of worn down he's missed time that he's been the, their best defensive player him being out it's coincided with their defense falling off a cliff 43 and 39 is the projection per Raptor for the sixth seed elo likes him for the same record and the same seed and playoff odds 77 percent raptor elo 84 percent. just because you mentioned it clippers have a 118 five offensive rating when Kawhi leonard is on the floor that is very good and that drops to a 1097 i believe when he sits so that that is his his stats are just bad shit too oh. in in 2023 traditionally 27 points 6.6 rebounds, 3.9 assists, playing 36 minutes per game. Uh, obviously, no back-to-backs, but I think they only have three of those remaining on the schedule at this point. And uh, eh, 65% true shooting on 27 usage, shooting 49% on five threes per 36 minutes. And uh, he is uh, averaging 31 points in his last seven games. So, uh, yeah, this is an interesting stat, too. If you look at some of the uh, the best scorers, and, and talk, we talked about the all nba some of these guys who have missed time uh although one of them is still out but uh when you when you look at all, all these guys some of the narratives around their seasons have been a lot different considering they've all kind of played the same number of games steph curry kevin durant Kawhi leonard devin booker have all played roughly the same amount of games they're 40 and 41 and 42 devin booker's actually played the fewest of the of that group which is not necessarily something we would have expected though he we it felt like long absences at the time that he was out um and on the season the clippers are 25 and 15 when Kawhi Leonard plays they are 10 and 18 when he sits and for Kawhi the full season numbers for him and you could consider the context that earlier in the year he was kind of working his way back are basically in line with 2020/21 his last uh season before the injury the biggest difference is a drop in Kawhi's free throw attempts per 36 from his best seasons but the overall efficiency and the three point shooting 
are basically identical. And Kawhi was fantastic in that Saturday when they had over the shorthanded Knicks, the, the shorthanded Knicks did beat the Lakers on Sunday on the kind of the second end of that state uh, crypto, I guess, double. Um, Kawhi had 19 in the third quarter on his way to 38 points in 37 minutes on a robust 14 of 22 from the field. And I mean, he's having some just preposterous, especially when you consider his shot mix and how many jumpers there are. I mean, he's not quite KD with this stuff, but he's probably the second best of just this guy who can hit. You know, I think he was, I don't know, like 14 to 16 at one point in the 176 to 175 game. And like considering his shot mix and yeah, he's hitting some threes, but only five for 36 minutes. Like the fact that he's able to put up these kind kinds of shooting games at time and 65 percent true shooting on that shot mix is absolutely absolutely some other things that stood out in that win over the Knicks, and then a couple other just overall clippers notes that was another contest where russell westbrook started but he did not close um the main lineup yeah. and these the- some of these games it's not even that like he's so bad that he's being benched it's just they're finding a good rhythm with whoever happens to be in the game they are and so the the main lineup towards the end of the next game was paul george Kawhi, and zubats along with eric gordon and marcus morris um and not a surprise but shifting mason plumley to the bench has been better than him as a starter he's still like there are weird times where like he, they pass him the ball and he just drops it um something happens his hands aren't Necessarily amazing, but Plumlee was actually at the center of what became a pretty important part of the game. There's a, a shot that goes up with, you know, a couple seconds left in the third quarter. And in a normal circumstance, it, the quarter would have just been over. The Knicks secured the rebound, but in that process, even though Julius Randle did not grab that rebound, Julius Randle threw an elbow and hit Mason Plumley, And so that became, so the Knicks were ahead by one. That elbow on what would have just ended the quarter became three points for the Clippers because it was the two from it being, I guess you could call it the equivalent of an over the backbreaker. And then it was, it was ruled eventually that he got he got a tech on, on it as well. And so that took a one point deficit to a two point Clippers lead. And then the Clippers never trailed the rest of the game. They went on a big run at the start of the fourth and then never really relinquished that. Two other scheduling things, and schedule matters more for the Clippers than basically anybody else because that impacts their star availability. They do still have three back-to-backs left, including the last two nights of the year. That could end up being very important depending on where things are and considering how bunched everything is right now. Now, will you want to necessarily... That would be so fascinating. I mean, I think they're going to be in pretty good position to get the six or or the five, but would they actually play Kawhi Leonard in a back-to-back if it meant they could get a top six seed? I mean, you'd have to imagine that to avoid the play-in, that would be worth playing back, right? That would be my expectation. And that those games... The only problem is if you lose and then you play them in a back-to-back and then you got to go out there and play again like that playing the seven eight yeah yeah the other bizarre quirk is that the clippers they have 13 games left eight of those 13 are against repeat opponents so they have Mm. two games left against the thunder two games against the grizz two games against the pelicans and two games against the blazers we don't know what those teams because some of those teams have some serious variants in terms of who could be available the the grizzlies games are in late march who in the world knows if john morant's going to be available at that point we pretty much know steven adams isn't going to be the pels i mean probably not zion maybe some of the other guys we'll have to see the first of those games against the pels is in late march the other one is in early april 
So in some ways, that's a like it's a good thing because that means the the Clippers don't have that many games left against really high level squads. And like they do play Phoenix in a game where depending on if if it matters, Kevin Durant could be in there because it's like the last game of the regular season. So I would say generally that works out well for them, depending on a few of these big old variables. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Golden State is next. The Golden State Warriors are 35 and 33, 5 and 3 since the last 15 and 60, including uh, an overtime win over the Milwaukee Bucks. On Saturday, they are 10th in net rating, plus 1.1 per hundred possessions, 13th in offense, 12th in defense, and both Raptor and Elo, the 538 models, project them to finish with 43 wins and finishes the five seed, um, giving them roughly an 80% chance. Raptor a little more optimistic than Elo. They got back on the winning track. They now have won, I think, seven straight at home and lost eight straight on the road. I haven't seen if anyone has looked this up yet, but I would imagine that's got to be close close to if not totally unprecedented in nba history as just their home success and road woes are i mean dan looked at this earlier what were you gonna say well the the overall season stats on that the warriors are 28 and 7 at home and 7 and 26 on the road yeah so they're basically the spurs or the rockets on the road and they're just about the best team league at home and there's been some shot making luck there that's persisted throughout most of the season but also just i mean they had their best defense of stretch of the season right before Steph comes back then they lose three straight on the road and I mean the OKC game and the Memphis game and OKC did get Shea back who killed them uh but Giddy was also killing them I'll actually talk more about that in the OKC section and then obviously in a game where you'd think they'd be motivated they uh, got completely lit up by the Grizz without John Morant um the bigger concern though for them uh well actually here to, to talk about them getting back on the winning track they're down eight with under two minutes to go that's probably like about a two percent win expectancy and steph curry scored 11 points in that stretch he had a, a transition layup and three three-pointers the last of which tied the game to send it into overtime uh, it was all against drew holiday uh, except the last one was against javon carter where he just issued a screen brought it full court uh used his strength to knock carter off and hit a three uh, to send it into overtime uh, uh, but still, they lucked out there. I mean, they, they should not have won that game. They've blown some incredible games too, like that Utah game. But if you look at their overall clutch record, and again, 
you know, they're great in the clutch at home and they're terrible in the clutch on the road. But overall, they haven't been particularly lucky or unlucky on the season. They've been about what they are supposed to be uh, in terms of their point differential. That point differential, though, I mean, Danny, this Andrew Wiggins thing, I mean, obviously it's troubling when anyone is going through any kind of a personal situation, which has now been deemed a family matter by some of the messaging, at least. So that indicates that it's not him uh, in terms of like, you know, some sort of uh, you know mental health absence or something like that. Um, but we're kind of getting to the point now with this, where it's certainly troubling that he's something bad enough is happening where he's had to miss now 12 games and really almost a month of the season now going back to before the all-star break. But also, I mean, that's, we don't know what it is, but this is starting to get to the point where you really wonder about whether he's going to be able to return at something resembling full strength, even by the playoff. Especially because this absence doesn't really have a definitive timeline. It could be that the Warriors have access to more clear, a more clear understanding of, of, of what this is and like what it could potentially be. But like, it's, it's definitely concerning. And again, we're, we're missing a lot of the context there. And part of the challenge for the Warriors is that they don't really have a reasonable replacement for Andrew Wiggins. He is, I, yeah. mean, I, I mean, he is, I would call him their third most important player, if maybe not their third best player, the way Clay has been playing this year. But I, even if, if they got the Andrew Wiggins from the playoffs last year, like that probably would still play. Because like, so in, in the game against the Bucks, granted, partially, maybe it was a revenge game for him. The fifth starter, they, they did bring Looney back into the starting lineup. They've been bouncing around a little bit with that. Was Dante DiVincenzo? DiVincenzo was six of twelve from three, but you know, so yeah, Div- so didn't they start? They started Clay at the four, right? They did, not in that game. That they did in a previous game. Oh yeah, maybe that was the Memphis. Yeah, because Looney has been dealing with back turns. Also, by the way, you should probably mention that Giannis did not play in that victory over the box. Correct. And so they tried. You know, the, Moses Moody's still not really in the rotation, and so you know, yeah. Iguodala has been out too. By the way, we should mention. Yeah, he has. He turned it, an ankle, so they are really low on side really low on wings and yeah it's a shortcoming of this team and and many teams are shorthanded on wings but the warriors it's a more notable absence especially because of how important wiggins was in their finals run last year and so jordan Poole came off the bench but he did play 25 minutes the warrior he had four made field goals four assists and four turnovers during that stretch of time um andre wadala was demummified for a brief sojourn um he played 10 minutes and then yeah. I mean, he's, he's looked okay defensively, but he will not shoot under any circumstances unless it's an uncontested two hand dunk off of two feet under the basket. And it's also one of the part, part of the awkwardness in terms of the Wiggins situation. Of course, the most important thing is whatever this issue is, that it works out well for as well as it can for all involved. And, and that is the priority that it is so undetermined. It is so nebulous and they don't really have replacements. And so as well as the Warriors have played when Stephen Curry has been available, I don't think they're particularly viable as a high end, you know, like really threatening team without Wiggins. And especially considering they're going to have in all likelihood a disadvantage in terms of like being the road team and, and potentially having to play a lot of higher stress minutes in this last push than a lot of these other teams will. I could, you know, you never want to say like they can't win a series. I mean, a, they can B they could get Wiggins back and, and we'll have to see where the matchups go. But 
This extended absence, especially considering how off he was for a stretch, he had the longest absence of his career earlier this same season and didn't look like himself for like, I don't know, it felt like two more weeks after that to have another extended absence. I mean, even if he does come back before the end of the season, will he be right on the court for, let's call it the start of the Warriors playoff run, but it might even have to be, you know, like it's, it's a big question. Now, the good news is that Steph Curry wasted no time in getting back to his same form. He had 40 in OKC, and then he, he had these heroics uh, against the Bucks as well. So he looks uh, as good as ever. His 35th birthday is, uh, I think, in, in the next couple of days. But eh, 67% true shooting, 31 usage for the season. Ho-hum. Yeah, he's only played 42 games, but uh, still uh, just uh, as good as ever. And it's really been a bounce-back regular season for Steph Curry. And you know, he definitely he's still, to me, is the best guard in the nba i'm i until proven otherwise like he hasn't had any kind of a drop off really whatsoever um so but that'll uh enough about our position rankings we'll get there uh yeah the other thing that not having wiggins means is just that they have to play jordan pool a lot more and so like it's not only okay we're taking andrew wiggins out and then all right maybe it's kaminga in there or uh, Otto porter or someone like that like generally they just don't have enough bodies and so like it's gonna be more of Steph, Pool, and Clay, and Pool playing over 30 minutes. And like, so that drop off from, you know, one of like the top three wing defenders to one of the worst defensive shooting guards, right? Like, it's not even someone at that same position who's coming in to replace him who has like the same level of size. They just have to go totally differently because they don't have good replacements for Wiggins. Now, maybe if Gary Payton II could come back instead, but like that, we don't know what the story is with that either. Uh, and he's not a guy who really can play more the 20 minutes probably either uh so yeah i mean it, it obviously that's I, that's not a surprise any team losing someone like andrew wiggins like you're just it doesn't matter what team you are you're not going to be a title contender and that's you know, particularly for a team that struggled the way this team has but i still despite all the hand ringing about the warriors defense which i think is completely warranted and i also think actually another reason why they haven't been quite as awesome offensively at times this year is because their defense has been bad like even back in the dynasty days the Warriors had one of the bigger differentials between their points per possession off a miss and off a make and they're still they, they don't run as much as they used to relative to the rest of the league but not having as many chances to do that like I think they're a team that's more reliant on feedback loops than say you know the Mavs or something like that but defensive rating this year Andrew Wiggins and Draymond Green on the floor 109.5 which is like right up there at the top of the league so if they could get this group back the potential is still there I still believe but if Andrew Wiggins is not himself I mean maybe they could just find a way if Steph and Draymond and Clay all go crazy to win a series particularly if they got a matchup against like the Kings or something but yeah I mean it's really it's hard to see them being in championship contention over the long haul Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Who do we need to get to next here? There is a tie currently for the seven and eight seeds. I'll go with the team that currently has the better clean the glass net rating, and that is the Dallas Mavericks. The Mavs, 34 and 34 on the season. They are two and five since the last 15 and 60. Plus 1.1 net rating is 12th in the NBA, sixth on offense, 23rd on defense, and Both Raptor and Elo predict that the Mavs will finish in that seven seed. Raptor more optimistic, which you'd expect considering it's built on player quality rather than how they've played. 72% chance of making the final eight, even though they are projected to be in the play-in. And a big question, you know, we talked about Raptor relying on player quality, is is how long they're going to be shorthanded. Luka's dealing with this thigh issue. Kyrie Irving missed the Grizzlies game due to right foot soreness. Though, I mean, to credit them, the, the Mavs were closer in that game than I did than I anticipated, though they did eventually fall to the, the shorthanded Grizzlies uh, 112-108 in Memphis on Saturday. They played again in dallas on monday and irving questionable for that game luca is going to be out with that left thigh strain but the good news for the mavs is they're getting everything they reasonably could have hoped for from kyrie irving top line 124 offensive rating in the luca kyrie minutes and they still don't know what the hell an offensive rebound is and they don't really pass break too much they're only getting 20 percent offensive rebound that's basically worse in the league type of level they are actually getting to the line a fair amount 80th percentile there with those two on the floor but the big number that's just crazy is 60 percent e-field goal percentage wow so that's anytime and this is you know it includes possessions that happen off off of offensive rebounds but it's basically a 120 offensive rating anytime you shoot the ball and that's not considering that you're going to get to the foul on some which they're actually doing at a pretty reasonable rate so the shooting percentages from everywhere are just completely off the charts when those two play together they are shooting 74 percent at the rim as a group uh the one place they are missing some is from the long mid-range but surprising considering that Kyrie in theory likes this area they're only taking five percent of their shots as twos outside of the paint and that is a very very low number that's basically about as low as you can possibly get it and you know they get more from the upper paint area actually Cooper Moore had used that term today to talk about where Bam Adebayo likes to shoot and I'm like yes that's what I'm going to start calling it as the upper paint that's better than floater range that's better than paint non-restricted upper paint that's i i, I like that term so i'm gonna start using that from now on they aren't taking very many shots at the rim but of course they are converting a ton of those and they're getting to the foul line a lot too so that will you know a lot of shots that would be shots at the rim turn into free throws so they're getting enough penetration to make things work and then the three-point shooting they are taking a ton of threes 43 percent of their shots from downtown that's basically a tops in the league level and probably the most unsustainable part of what they've been doing is making 42 percent of their three-pointers with those two guys on the floor but Kyrie Irving I mean he's a 40 percent three-point shooter he's and he's actually hitting 41 percent from three 7.5 three-point times per 36 minutes he's at 65 percent true 
shooting, most of that coming just from hitting 41% rather than 38% from three. Uh, but he's been shockingly consistent, Danny, if you compare what he did in Dallas versus in Brooklyn. He's actually all, almost played now about 30% as many minutes in Dallas as he played in Brooklyn. So it's not an insignificant sample. He's played 11 games. And everything's pretty much the same if you look at some of Seth's usage stats in terms of how he's operating. Yeah, you could look at it from Seth's stats or even um, some of the synergy stuff as well. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I mean, because like the, the proportion of his possessions in like pick and roll and ISO. But yeah, let's go. We could go to Seth's stats first. Time of possession, very, very similar about 29% of the time for both teams. Scoring usage, a little bit lower with Dallas, 25 versus 27. Playmaking usage, though, kind of complements that. So the total usage is within basically a half a percent, and the turnover rate is, yeah, it's it's, it's a remarkably similar player. Yeah, very low turnover usage uh, as well for him. And then if you look at both his, uh, the way he scores in, in terms of the different play types, he's been a little bit more efficient, particularly out of pick and roll in Dallas. And he is at 1.3 points per possessions, 87 points on 67 possessions as the pick and roll ball handler in Dallas. Interestingly, he rejects the screen about a third of the time, which is a pretty high percentage. And usually when guys reject the screen, it's with a hard dribble move attacking. So he's much more likely to drive to the basket when rejecting the screen. When he uses the screen, he's almost always going to pull up, but he's been hitting everything he's at on those. Uh, he's taken on a high pick and roll when he goes goes off the screen 25 jumpers off the dribble and only five times has he gotten all the way to the rim out of that so th that's interesting just scouting report wise what to kind of be prepared for uh his isos he's been unbelievable to uh 1.2 points per possession there 90 uh first percentile in isolation 99th pick and roll ball handler and he's also been unbelievable off of handoffs which is kind of the same as pick and roll so the only thing that he's been a little bit worse on is the spot up game where his team created spot ups he hasn't hit as many he's actually never been as comfortable as a spot up guy compared to off the dribble he's just something he's always been more comfortable with the ball but he's still obviously a very capable spot up shooter and more importantly not someone that teams are going to leave at all so I mean, they're getting the exact guy that they traded for they've won some games without Luca, but of course uh, he had a personal absence from practice and now this foot soreness that may keep him out a couple of games that's a concern and part of the reason you might say he has that foot soreness is he's been averaging 38 minutes a game and he had 41 in that game in new orleans that they lost in part because luca didn't finish the game due to the thigh issues so they may have been putting a little bit too much of a load on a, a guy who's a, a small guard now in his 30 but again like the, to the extent it hasn't been working it hasn't been Kyrie Irving's fault put it that way especially not on the offense but there have been the defensive issues with the Mavericks run run long and run yeah. deep. But you but could never expect th that you were going to get that from him anyway, right? So. Fair enough. Yeah. Unless you have something more on the Dallas Mavericks, we can move to the Minnesota Timberwolves, who have an identical 34-34 and 34 record. They are 3-3 three and three since the last 15-60, but they have a, a worse net rating there, plus 0.2, so just, just barely above water, which is 17th in the league, 21st in offense, and 8th in defense. Not exactly what we expected from the Wolves at times this year, though. This is a Rudy Gobert team. We'll talk about that in a bit. Um, they're projected as the nine seed, I believe, on both Raptor and Elo at the moment. One with 41 wins, one with 40. 
and roughly, you know, 50% chance of making the playoffs, 57 Raptor, 47 Elo. So I wanted to take a look at this Wolves defense because the personnel is pretty good. Gobert, Anthony Edwards, we were just talking about. He's one of the better defensive shooting guards, and he's actually playing shooting guard uh, this year as well. So they have a lot of size. Uh, Jaden McDaniels is one of the best rim protectors at his position, makes a lot of plays, has a ton of length. Kyle Anderson is getting a lot of tick for these guys also. They moved on from D'Angelo Russell, so that, that should, in theory, help their defense also. So overall, since Carl Anthony Towns went down on November 28th they are number seven on defense how are they getting there 13th in e-field goal percentage but that's counteracted by being fifth in forcing turnovers and that's nice to see because they're not playing as aggressive of a style at least with gobert on the floor we'll talk a little bit more about that overall they've been absolutely terrible on the defensive glass and absolutely terrible in avoiding fouls they're 28th in both of those four factors so overall that's not the hallmark of a rudy gobert defense that we've seen danny what are the things that stood out for gobert defenses back when he was in utah the trio that i always think of was i guess you could say four things Opponent free throw attempt rate, defensive rebounding, and then ideally, depending on the year, the last Jazz year wasn't both of these, low rim attempt rate, low rim success rate. Yeah, so when you would look at that location e-fugal percentage stat and cleaning the glass, the Jazz were always like right at the top. And this year, after Carl Anthony Towns went down, 24th in location e-fugal, and they are also 25th in terms of the percentage of shots allowed at the rim on this team, which again, not what you would normally expect overall from a Rudy Gobert defense. However, they are at least stopping the opponents at the rim through Gobert, McDaniels, Kyle Anderson. Uh, They are also getting a little bit lucky opponents are only shooting 40 percent from mid-range that's third best in the league uh however they are also getting unlucky in opponent three-point percentage they're 20th there so that i wouldn't i don't think their shooting luck has had a huge difference now if you look at the effect that gobert has had both in terms of the points per possession 7.6 points 100 better on defense teams shoot 2.3 percentage points worse from the field they also turn the ball over way less when rudy gobert is on the floor remember Nas Reed is his backup so they go back to more of that aggressive style that they had last year with Carl Anthony Towns and Reed uh and they actually foul a ton less and they give up way fewer offensive rebounds when Gobert is on the floor but it's just when he's off the floor it's just those things become somewhat disastrous again and then Danny if you look at the effect that Gobert has an opponent shot location he is having somewhat of a similar effect to what we had seen in Utah it's just that it's going from such a low baseline that it's not quite at the ridiculous levels in raw terms as we saw in utah huge rim deterrence um about eight percent fewer of opponent shots are coming at the rim and, and something we've seen from kobe before a lot of those transition to short mid-range is the way cleaning the glass defines it so that's two percent higher but unfor and the other good news for the jet for the wolves sorry is that another two and a half percent of that goes to long twos the less fortunate part is that some of it also goes to three-pointers and that that can lead to more variance and everything else 
Then the Gobert effect on offense, and I think it's really come into focus for me the last two years that I think Gobert doesn't have the same level of explosiveness as an alley-oop finisher or even like a finisher on offensive rebounds as he had a couple of years ago. But he really is a negative offensive player. Some of that is just a a little bit of bad shooting luck, but they are 8.4 points per 100 worse on offense when he's on the floor again remember his backups are reed and towns earlier in the season so those are offense only centers basically and he's a defense only center so they shoot way worse interestingly they turn it over way more when gobert is on the floor and that doesn't surprise me a ton because bobbled passes that he'll have more illegal screens and just generally a lot less space to work with that's going to lead to turnovers. they do get five percent higher offensive rebounds five percentage points higher there and they don't really get to the line much different either way how are they playing overall since the mike conley trade not fantastic overall four and six is the record um actually worse on offense than defense which is true over the whole year but 20th on offense that is a slight uptick from from where they've been and then 16th on defense which is significantly worse than they were before and worth noting that gobert has missed some time during that uh i I thought one thing that was notable in the four factors is just that they never ever get to the foul line and i mean russell he wasn't like some great foul line guy but he at least would like go through guys arms or do the rip move a couple times a game like mike conley actually used to be an underrated foul drawer but since he went from memphis to utah he really doesn't do any of that stuff anymore and he he was also kind of relying on the like feel contact and throw it up move but however the conley gobert combination that was one of the big selling points of the trade was that they could get someone who's more comfortable playing with gobert and that combination the numbers have been good there uh, they've played almost 500 possessions together plus 4.3 net rating for a team like this that's not bad uh and in those conley gobert minutes they have actually been very good at some of the things that they've really been struggling with defensively overall as a team 96 percentile in defensive rebounding and 96 percentile in avoiding fouls so that's nice at least so we can keep an eye on how that kind combination does but it does seem like they're i mean i'm not going to give conley a ton of credit for their defense but you might give him credit for not being d'angelo russell at least nate let's go from rudy gobert's current team to rudy gobert's former team the utah jazz 33 and 35 two and four since we last checked in on they are actually positive in net rating 0.2 but that only puts them 18th in the nba because those averages are uh, quite dragged down by the bottom when you don't have equivalent teams at the top seventh on offense that's been dropping they were top five most of the season but now with the trades we've talked about some of the issues they have their 24th on defense they project for the 12th seed 39 wins per both of the projection systems raptor likes them for 10 percent chance of the playoffs and elo 20 percent. but they are as of right now at least a, a little bit higher this is actually a four-way tie right now at 33 and 35 towards the i mean this would be the eighth seed no this would be the uh nine it's nine through, through 12. 12 seeds yeah so it's okc lakers jazz and pels all at 33 and 35 right now and then got the blazers now actually in 13th two games behind quartet yeah and the jazz you know so you're kind of thinking about one of the things i wanted to look at is what have things been overall since they traded conley and that also coincided with trading away vanderbilt beasley you know they, they a, a fun, fundamental restructuring of parts of this team 
And I would say things haven't gone great if you assume that the goal is winning basketball games, which it isn't necessarily for the Jazz. And you could even make an argument that if not winning games is the goal, that it hasn't been super successful either because they've been six and seven. And so that's kind of like good enough to stay in the mix, but not good enough to gain some real ground in terms of lottery odds. They could still do that, but 33 wins, like right now, it would take a pretty big fall for the Jazz to fall to to maybe go beyond the teams that are going to be on the fringes of the play and mix in the East. They have a couple more wins on those guys right now if they were to fall off. And we don't know that that's for sure. I brought up the six and seven record. They do have a negative 2.8 net rating during that time, cleaning the glass, um, which is 22nd. So they've been outperforming their differential overall. Fallen to 18th on offense during the stretch, but more respectable 17th on defense. Small sample size stuff. One thing that really stuck out to me, their defensive rating was basically identical before the deadline and after the deadline, but it went from being 27th in the league to being 17th just because offense has been that aggressive during this stretch. So just something just something to remember. There's this old idea that offenses get better over the course of the season. That's just one, one data point in that. And so going from 4th to 18th on offense, it's both not surprising and also not the most exciting thing. I have been encouraged by how Larry Markkinen has done when you consider the supporting factors. Like he's done more with, with less than I expected, which is very good for him. But where I wanted to draw the focus for the remainder of this section is on rookie Ochai Baji. We've talked a lot about Walker Kessler in this space, and Walker Kessler deserves that praise, but especially now that Abaji is basically starting for them, we could talk about him. Yeah, who's being talked about as, if not an untouchable, at least protected in trade talks. And one of the things that I've thought about him since Summer League is, hey, this guy looks like he could be a reasonable 3 and D type of shooting guard. And you know doesn't quite have that elite size, I don't think, to match up against the biggest wings. But I thought this is illuminating just going through our shooting guard rankings last week that, hey, how many guys are there who are really a plus on defense. Now, I made the point at that time that being, you know, kind of an average or above average defensive shooting guard may not actually be that valuable because are those guys really that much better than the defensive shooting guards who aren't that great? Like they're all going to be defensive liabilities when you get into that playoff crucible against the best team. So much to be seen here of where he can get to as a defender. I've probably got more confidence in the offense right now, but he's got more athleticism and probably more strength or at least the basis for having some strength as he fills out than some of these guys. Early on, of course, the defensive numbers aren't great, but he's a rookie big surprise and even being a slightly older rookie abaji because he played four years of college this is his age 22 season and yeah the defensive numbers aren't great um below one percent steal rate and block rate ep depm negative 1.8 which isn't fantastic and i'll start with the just the part of abaji's offensive profile that is the most striking is just how small his overall role is i mean you could do 13 percent usage if you like but in terms of Seth's total usage, that's about 17%, which is 10th percentile for any position, not just like a two guard, just a very small role within the offense. And Abaji's time of possession is 4.6% of the time when he's on the floor. That is well below the 10th percentile. So he barely has the ball in his hands. And Abaji... The, it was, this is actually it was a more striking stat before the last game, but now the the, the formal version now. Oshayabashi's played 779 NBA minutes this year. He has taken a total of 
12 jump shots off the dribble. That number was nine, but he took three in their last game to bump it into double digits, which made me a little bit angry because I liked it better when it was nine. And it's not, I mean, again, there there aren't many sample sizes smaller than 12 in, in practicality, but three of 12 on those for nine points, that's not exactly fantastic. But another way of doing this is that if you think about 100 Jazz possessions where Abaji's on the floor, only 2.5 of those will be an Ochai Abaji self-created shot. He's just not doing that very much. And that you could say that's a bad thing. But the more important part is, well, you don't want him to create that much for himself and others. How is he doing on the shots that others create for him? And the answer is pretty good. So Abaji, one question we didn't get to scout him was whether the three-pointer would translate. Because he started out at Kansas making in the low 30s, 31% and then 34% as sophomore year then started hitting him was never a great three point or never a great free throw shooter in college was high six even when he was shooting better from three was high 60s low 70s on free throws you're like "Eh, how is that there it looked pretty good when we saw him in summer league and now building out the sample taking 6.2 per 36 that's good i'd like to see it a little higher but abashi making 37 percent of those and that's very positive for him overall and that's enough to get guarded. I don't see him really shying away from those shots. It's just the ball isn't finding him quite as much, and he's not doing a whole lot else with the ball in his hands. So the I would say the most important things, you know, like is he moving? Is he is he like mentally active on defense? I think those parts of it are there when I watch them. The stats don't love it, but they I mean the Jazz aren't a good defensive team and Abaji's not really doing much defensive playmaking. So there isn't there isn't credit to give him and there isn't a reason to give him that credit. And but the the other building blocks I think are potentially there. My concern as it as it is is it's kind of similar to what we talked about after the trade is okay, he's better as a play finisher than a play an advantage creator totally justified what does that process of acquiring an advantage creator look like for the jazz yeah if they have great lottery luck if they can find somebody to take their money at some point depending on how they want to use their cap space over the next couple years they can do that I worry a little bit that next year is going to be frustrating because they'll have other guys as much as Lowry Markkinen has taken a step forward that could really benefit from that player, but just probably taking another year to get them. It is worth noting that they did have the top top five offense this year before these trades without that type of player necessarily. And so maybe you could say if you get enough creation from your Clarkson types, you know, get a little more passing and then hope to build your defense around Walker Kessler, that could be a road to getting to be pretty decent sooner rather than later. But yeah, obviously another high level creator, they're going to be really good. It's kind of interesting when you're talking about expanding the offensive role. One thing that he might be able to do would be coming off of screens and in his last four games, uh, he actually had eight possessions doing that against Oklahoma City. And then he's had two, three, and two, the, the two games after that. As a pick-and-roll ball handler, that's the other thing that he might do. He had five pick-and-roll ball handler possessions against Charlotte. And over the previous 19 games he had played, Ochai Abaji had five pick-and-roll ball handler wow. possessions. And zero in 17 of his last 20 games. He had two and then three in two individual individual games so maybe this presages that we'll see a little bit more of him as an on-ball creator uh just in terms of the jazz season you noted how it's kind of not really successful going either direction well they had actually lost four straight uh including at home to san antonio and then they lost a set at oklahoma city and they lost at dallas but then they actually won 
two in a row on the road at Orlando and Charlotte. Both teams are actually like playing reasonably well. Uh, so those are actually like what would be considered good wins for them. But yeah, I mean, if they had just lost those two games, they would be on a six game losing streak right now. And they'd be tied down with Portland for basically 13th, 12th or 13th, and probably at this point out of things. So those two wins probably saved their play in hopes, at least for now. One other thing I wanted to mention before we move on from the Jazz, they have a plus seven net rating when Larry Markin and Walker Kessler are together on the full season. That is a really, really good figure, especially for a team that is still getting things together. And I was like, oh, well, you know, Mike Conley, he's been important to them offensively, brought that up earlier. I wonder what it's like when he's off the floor. Still plus 6.4. Like that that's very strong. Turn the ball over kind of a lot and you can think about that that the the most used Jazz 5 with Kessler and Markinen on and Conley off is actually Markinen at the 3 alongside Olinick and Kessler and then the two the other guards Abaji and Taylor Horton Tucker. So that group has actually been strangely effective, but it is, you know, it's a group that you could see turning the ball over a fair amount. And the other good news for them, not a ton of shooting luck in that in a lot a lot of the defensive success is defending the rim, not fouling, defensive rebounding, not fantastic overall. But like the idea that Kessler and Markkanen can be the foundation of a successful team. I mean, especially when you consider that Markkanen is one of the most improved players in the league this year and Kessler is a rookie. Like that, I, I can see that right now. Let's turn now to the New Orleans Pelicans, another of this brigade at 33 and 35. What are their fundamentals? The Pels are 33 and 35, three and four since the last 1560. Actually better than some of their brethren in net rating plus 0.5 is 15th. They're 20th in offense, 9th in defense. Both Raptor and Elo project the Pels to finish with 40 wins, which would be 10th in the West. But the margins here are razor, razor thin. Um, And both models give the Pels roughly a 35% chance of actually making the playoffs. So Danny, without... Let's start actually with this. Trey Murphy uh, against the Blazers, who uh, had Damian Lillard as a late scratch in New Orleans, had a, a ridiculous game tonight, did it with 41 points in 30 minutes, plus 44, 13 of 20 from the field, 9 of 14 from three, one assist, and just catching up on how he was able to get going. It was really just the three-pointer from way out. Almost all of his makes were three steps behind the line with that set shot. He did hit a couple one yet. He set up from there in transition, got a flyby and stepped into the line. There was one where they ran a play for him. Coming off the screen, he was able to hit that too. You know, I really hope that that's something that he can add to his game, especially because this team really needs that additional element with Zion out of just more stuff that they can run to get high value shots to bend the defense which they've been showing with they also got Larry Nance back in that game he only played eight minutes but was plus 14 in a revenge game against the Blazers and their medical staff and this one was not particularly close after the third quarter or so Nate uh, since you brought it up I looked it up Trey Murphy's plus 44 is the tied tied with a couple guys the third best individual plus minus this season numbers one and two are the same guy Jason Tatum had a plus 46 game against the Nets and a plus 45 game in that one against the Hornets you're a truly intrepid basketball reference researcher, Danny. I appreciate it. Now, I, now I want to look up the worst, the the lowest plus minus so far this year. Keldon Johnson, Royce O'Neal, both had. Oh, actually, they're 
there are four guys. Keldon Johnson, Royce O'Neal, Devin Booker, Kelly Oubre all had negative 40s. Devin Booker, yeah. What game was that? When they got housed by the Celtics. That's it was early right. in the season. Yeah, I remember that one. Uh, Herb Jones was also plus 43 in this one and made a couple of three-pointers. Uh, had seven assists. He was uh, actually very good in grabbing goes and was able to find Trey for a number of those three-pointers in semi-transition situations. So let me ask you this, Danny. Who... If Zion Williamson is unavailable, who are the New Orleans Pelicans' two best players? I think this has an obvious answer. It does. Brandon Ingram, CJ McCollum. Yeah, I'd be interested to see, actually, when we do our position rankings, if anyone ranks higher. Probably, I don't think, maybe, yeah, even Trey Murphy probably isn't good enough entirely. So, CJ's maybe, like, you know, the, I think we had, both had him in the mid-teens in terms of shooting guards. And Ingram will probably be lower end of the top ten, I'm guessing, as a small forward. But this is a team that's in pretty good depth. You know, they're trying this. This year zion williamson is out yeah you know that's that's tough but hey you know they, these guys made the playoffs last year with this pretty much the exact same group i mean that was other than adding dyson daniels the pels in part due to the luxury tax concerns that resulted from the acquisition of cj mccollum did absolutely nothing to change up their personnel and yet these numbers danny i just found this when i was doing some quick research as i was recording with john last week the numbers with brandon ingram and and cj mccollum on the floor and no zion i mean this, this is like the most shocking stat that i've seen like all season w- were you as shocked by this as i am mostly it actually came up uh, i i had seen it from some pelicans bloggers like kind of the basic idea of this a little bit ago but yeah i mean a, a negative 13 clean the glass net rating in roughly a thousand possessions when those guys played together that's distinctly not fantastic anytime you see numbers that extreme with a team that's actually trying and has some good players that there's gonna be some shooting luck involved there and that's the case uh, for them somewhat but not that much actually as you really look at it because a lot of the issues that they have both with making shots and with shot selection both for their themselves and their opponent are kind of things that you do make sense as you really look at some of the issues I mean, the one that stands out to me is that they don't get to the free throw line. Yeah. Yeah, And you'd think that Valanchunas would help with that. We'll kind of talk a little bit more about his effect on this group as well. Uh, But yeah, I mean, CJ McCollum, what are like the hallmarks of CJ McCollum and Brandon Ingram and kind of this overall Pels team and this personnel, right? Well, neither of them are guys who really get to the foul line a ton. Not amazing passers. Great mid-range shooters. And you might be like, hey, like that's, you know, maybe they're just missing their mid-rangers. No, actually, even as they're on their way to this 110 offensive rating they're shooting incredibly well for mid-range they're at 54 percent on twos outside the paint and 46 percent on twos away from the rim overall uh they are shooting 33 percent from three but i mean like they're not they don't have good three-point shooters really right like ingram and and cj are okay but they don't have a ton of volume the other problem is they're not even generating that many threes either they're uh only taking 32 percent of their shots from threes that, that's 20th percentile with this group and you know, like they're playing herb jones in a lot of these lineups and really trey murphy is the only one that's like a high volume high percentage guy in these groups from three so it's that's not like i mean maybe it's a little bit below where they should be but like it's not insane
insane to me that this group could be shooting that percentage from three now more the low volume i think it would more likely to persist than the percentage but uh and they're shooting very poorly on corner threes in particular uh, which is you know that's something that will be better like these guys are better than a, a you know a 110 on offense that's 14 percent. so like i think you going forward these guys would be better there what about the stats uh, oh, oh and also they never they never get to the rim with this group and they don't finish amazingly well at the rim either like cj's never been a great finisher and they have no spacing so that's obviously gonna make it hard to finish at the rim uh what about defensively what sticks out there uh, to lead them to this 123 defense i would say the thing that's the most notable and in some ways the most concerning is that they're actually a little bit positive on three-point shooting luck so they're yeah, giving up yeah. only 35 I, th- I thought there would be something there there's not there is not um and those groups give up a lot of threes so it's about 39 percent of opponent shots and the opponents are shooting below average on those like pretty well below average they the the pels are giving up pretty strong shooting on long twos that has a little bit of variance to it as well but New Orleans horrendous at protecting the rim in these minutes, and that goes that goes a lot to Valanciunas. It's one of the bigger differences between Valanciunas and Nance, though there are many. Yeah, when Valanciunas is in with CJ and Ingram, opponents shoot seventy seven percent at the rim. Oh, in five hundred and twenty miles. I mean, that's that's an I don't recall seeing that number for basically any lot any defensive lineup in that number of possessions. Like that is uh, truly horrendous uh would having nance in help a little bit uh yeah they're actually plus 3.5 with nance ingram and cj but that's only 256 possessions nance has been out he can only play probably 20 minutes a game anyway uh so like they're gonna have to get minutes out of valentine's i don't think that going to jackson hayes there will help now you might say starting jackson hayes again like that group was actually pretty good eh, you know maybe i don't think that like putting him in instead of trey murphy with the starters like, like doesn't make a ton of sense to me maybe just getting more room protection is something they'd like to go to uh what about last year last year these halcyon days it wasn't like that crazy of a success plus 5.2 they played about 500 ball or so if memory serves when after they got ingram and cj although those guys were kind of alternating in terms of availability for some time after trade deadline so they're plus 5.2 and the biggest thing there was they actually got to the foul line and got offensive rebounds a lot better than they're getting so far this year and then last year defensively it looks like they i didn't break it down fully but they had a little bit better of shot defense in particular than they've had so far this season uh Uh, they were uh yeah go ahead uh, no no i'll I'll say i'll save it for them um yeah well so so there's a little bit of news though on the potential zion return well okay i'll I'll share mine then afterwards i hadn't seen that um well yeah it's from sam amick uh he did this breakdown of all the west contenders and how they're trying to put together you know find continuity and stuff uh the pels announced you'll recall we talked about this last wednesday that zion is going to be reevaluated in two weeks but uh according to amic a source is now the situation said the team is still expecting him to be ready before the end of the regular season noting of course that predicting a zion injury timeline is uh, fraught with peril but significant hope remain that he'll be healthy in time to be a late game changer but uh, as i've noted even if he does come back he'll be in a minutes limit he won't be playing back to backs and he's a guy who's kind of struggled to find his physical form he's also i would say of almost all the players in the nba the most reliant in being 
in his peak physical form to be effective and that's particularly the case on defense so i'm not looking even if he does come back with two weeks left in the regular season and they are able to like sneak in i I don't see that as a panacea but hey you never know what was the last thing that you had i i had pulled the stat of you you brought up brent Ingram, CJ, no Zion. Ingram, CJ, and Zion on the floor, only 355 possessions, which just sucks. Like, it's really disappointing that hasn't happened. Plus 19.5 net rating with those groups on the floor. That is a ridiculous, um, basically 124 offensive rating and then a strong defensive rating, though there is massive opponent shooting luck in the defensive part of that. <laughs> if you're if you're scoring 124, though, it honestly doesn't matter that much what you're giving up defensively. You're still going to be running roughshod through almost everyone. Well, unless you're the Dallas Mavericks. Sure. Who's up next here? Well, I'll give you the choice because there are still two more teams that are tied here, and you did most yeah. of the legwork on them. The Oklahoma City Thunder and the Los Angeles Lakers. Oh, let's get to the Lakers. Oh, wait. I did the legwork on the Lakers. That's right. Yeah, that was, was a long say, time ago. I, I was like, hey, give yourself some credit here, man. Yeah. Uh, so, so do you want to do their stats then? Once again, 33 and 35, a familiar theme. Five and three since we last checked in on them, although they had a disappointing loss to the Knicks at home today who were playing without Jalen Brunson and were looking like they might be primed for a three-game losing streak on this West Coast swing. 22nd on offense, 15 on defense for the season for this Lakers team projecting for the eighth seed Danny mm-hmm. 21 and 41 also the same Brilo 52 percent chance of the playoffs when's the last time they were over 50 percent chance of the playoffs and actually they had a chance today had they won they would have been 500 for the first time since the middle of last season remember they started that miserable two and eight start this year what's been going on with them lately lebron james went down in that dallas game which they eventually won and at the time you and i did some disappointed sections of recordings on it looked like the lakers chances were fading since then they've gone four and three with wins over the raptors the grizzlies without jaw the warriors and the thunder without shea or anthony davis and not including today's loss to the knicks during that stretch anthony davis is scoring 29 points and has 12.6 rebounds per game including 10 free throw attempts per contest and that even includes um ad only had eight points against the raptors in a game that they won he was more in the like mid to high 30s most of the early part of this and on the season Anthony Davis, 63% true shooting on 29 usage. This is the highest true shooting percentage of Anthony Davis's career. And the overall picture, though, pretty close to his first year in the Lakers, 1920, when they won the title. And at first you go, hey, you know, like going back to that year, maybe it's the jump shot coming back. No, not particularly. Davis taking just 1.6 threes per 36 minutes, less than half of what he was doing at that point and only making 27%. Instead, it's transitioning from kind of low mid 40s as the proportion of his shots taking place within four feet all the way up to more than half, which is those shots are going to go in a lot. And Davis, another way of kind of putting that shot mix, it used to be that like in those early Lakers years, 23% of Davis's shots were long twos. That's all the way down to 14%. And those are not going to threes. Those are going to shots closer to the basket. He's still, this is something that Locke pointed out all the way back when he was with New Orleans. He still is very oddly inconsistent where he's had, since the deadline, games of 13, 12, and 8 points. And then you, even in this game against the Knicks, you didn't really feel him. He had 17 points on 18 field goal attempts. He also 
goals, one of five from the line. In their victory over Toronto, he had eight points, four of seven, didn't take a free throw, had four blocks. I mean, the defensive effort has been very consistent. He's uh, up until tonight, he'd had two or more blocks in every game since their first game after the deadline on February 11th. So that that's been very impressive. But it is kind of weird now when, especially as you noted, he's not taking as many mid-rangers, fewer straight post-ups, especially now that Russell is back. I think maybe not a total coincidence, especially with these Russell scoring well in these games, that AD is not getting as many chances with Russell taking on more of the offense. And they're against the Knicks, they're he was touching the ball a lot like they're trying to get him involved multiple pick and rolls multiple handoffs and i didn't think he had a great screening game now you never know because sometimes the game plan is to have him slip out of there get downhill early use his gravity uh but the knicks guards are very scrappy on ball quickly miles mcbride barrett had had a nice game defensively and then their center is almost always going to be in a drop coverage so i think you probably want to focus more on setting the screen hard there get your guard some separation and force the the big to react because if you slip out of there early you're just slipping right into where the big's already standing and you never created any separation uh so it is kind of interesting just like that he's inconsistent but that when you're more of a role man you're more subject to how the defense is playing you than if you're someone that you're just throwing the ball to to initiate it every time and you know so if he's not posting up all the time or anything like that like you know if uh, if you're being played differently and they're taking you away then maybe that's opening things up for your teammates instead but it still is interesting that he's just not as consistent as some of these other guys what else can we talk about with the lakers here did uh, well, I mentioned D'Angelo Russell, 28 in his in his comeback game, which they won over the Raps, and then 33 in the loss to the Knicks. Um, yeah, I think he had, as they broke away late in the fourth quarter against the Raps, I think he was 5 of 5 and hit a bunch of threes. Um, this game, he really fizzled in the fourth quarter uh, as the Knicks uh, were able to pull away. Um, also, watching D'Angelo Russell and Rui Hachimura trying to defensive rebound against Josh Hart was uh, a little eye-opening. Didn't look too favorably on the Lakers. Obviously, Russell played well, uh, but it's just that they're uh, pursuing loose balls is not the thing that those two guys are best at. Not necessarily a forte. And just as a stray note, they play on Tuesday in a game we're doing for the NBA strategy stream. Who would have thought a month ago that the Pelicans may keep their pick instead of swapping it with the Lakers? Like, that's... A yeah. pretty amazing, a pretty amazing swing. Um, but something else I wanted to focus on is Malik Beasley, Jared Vanderbilt made their Lakers debuts on February 11th in a game that the Lakers played against the Golden State Warriors. Since that point, the Lakers are eight and four with a plus 3.1 net rating. That is ninth in the NBA. They're 22nd in offense and first in defense. And remember that LeBron James has missed more than half of those games. Like this is, and there is of course some shooting luck in it. Opponents are shooting, making about a third of their threes, which is really low. And I will credit Anthony Davis that uh, opponents are shooting poorly around the basket. I give a lot of that to him. And there are a couple different ways to, to frame how those transactions affected the depth of the Lakers. So 
In the game against the Raptors, Darvin Ham played nine different guys. Three of his starters and four of those nine players overall were not on the team before those trades. And really the only two key rotation players the Lakers lost were Russell Westbrook and Patrick Beverly. One, Scott Anderson and Damian Jones were also in the deals and also played on the team at times, but like they weren't as, as central to everything. And so they added a lot of quality. And in some ways, especially with LeBron James out, they've needed that to stay afloat. And it's made a world of difference for them. Yeah, and the AD has really stepped up both times uh, that LeBron has missed significant time. James was seen without a walking boot and we're what about two weeks in now to what's like a three four week potential reevaluation period for lebron and yeah i mean they're that opposing schedule not too terrible going forward the lakers after the game against the knicks they have the lowest opponent winning percentage in the entire nba they only have two games left against teams that are currently top four in their conference and those are both against the Suns, the first of which will occur without Kevin Durant. The second is the second to last game of the season. So who, who knows? Hopefully KD is back by then. They also have two games against the Rockets. They have two games against the, the late, late games against the Jazz. So we could see if, if Danny Ainge is pushing more towards the exits at that juncture. And also because the Lakers have fewer games remaining than most, they have 14. Some teams, the lowest that you have around the league right now is 12. There are a couple teams that are there. But then like Sacramento has six. 16 and a few other a bunch of teams at 15 that means the lakers plus the time that's remaining they only have two back-to-backs and one of them is this week against the injured pelicans and the houston rockets so they might not have to push the accelerator as hard in that back-to-back as most and then the only other one is a utah clippers back-to-back technically both the road games but the second of those is in your home stadium all right let's finish at least the last of these 33 and 35s here with okc let's do it the thunder as you mentioned 33 and 35 they are five and four since the last 1560 uh plus one net rating is 13th in the nba they are 15th in offense and it's still incredible to say 11th on defense 538 models are more skeptical of them than some of their brethren uh 39 wins on raptor 40 on elo and big difference bigger than most in the raptor versus elo playoff odds 10 percent raptor 38 elo in part just because i mean the raptor is built on their estimates of player quality and the thunder are very low in that but they've been playing well recently especially when shea gildas alexander has been available so they have a chance of making it in and potentially they have a chance of making it through we'll have to see where where things lie but if it happens an important part of that is going to be josh giddy though just to, to let people behind the curtain a little bit nate sometimes uses voice notes on this josh giddy in voice note speech touch goes to josh kitty k-i-t-t-y and in my head that's now head cannon. that's just what he's going to be called in my head for the rest of his career <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> uh, it's I, I I I'm sorry. I enjoyed it way too much, and now it's just the way things are. Oh, what what a terrifying look behind the curtain, Danny. That is, uh, yeah. And I I because uh, I, I like to use voice notes because you don't have to like look away to type or anything. Or uh, if you're watching highlights on the computer or film on the computer, you can just like do a voice note. So the thing that stuck out to me against Golden State, I, I thought it was. A blueprint admittedly against a team that was playing very poor defense and didn't have great size to match up with Giddy, but I thought it was a blueprint for how he could really 
be successful as a high level offensively. I mean, he had 17 points, 14 assists in that game and loves to get out in transition. Obviously, he got found his way to a couple of offensive rebounds where he's able to set up assists as well. And if he comes down in transition, like he's pretty good in a straight line. There are a couple of times where he, the, the Thunder loved to run all these guard guard screens. And so he just kind of got going in a straight line. The guy who switched onto him was too slow. He was able to get past him because he already had some momentum. And other times he was able to work into that upper paint area, usually against smaller players and he's really helped a lot by the way that the thunder play where they basically have a shooter at the five on the floor at all times they play five out at all times and that is i've always thought I mean, going back to like the pistons signing kelly Olinick and even earlier of uh, muscala was a guy where you first saw this in okc but i felt like with a young team getting a stretch five who can really play even if he's not a good defensive player it's just a good developmental option for your team and this has gone beyond that now to where it's really a supercharged they're off I and mean, they are third in the nba in scoring raw points per game and and 15th on defense i mean that or 15th on offense i mean that 11th on defense is also crazy good but uh again if you had when i projected where they would be on offense this year i've had them in the bottom five i even had them in like the lowest possible tier so they've been way better than that and so being able to play with that five out jalen williams was really good in that golden state game and talked about him more but so giddy he's got the space against smaller guys he's not necessarily going to blow by a guy initially he's also not a guy who can really stop on a dime rise up for a mid-range pull-up and he's more gonna you know kind of shoot some floaters along the lane line or work to a spot but he does have like a nice little float game and when he's up against a smaller player he can get that shot off from the dotted line area but the other thing that makes him effective at times working into that area which is an inefficient area for a lot of guys is he's just such a good passer he's got such good size and if anyone breaks open whether it's along the baseline on a cut or more often finding a shooter just with guys kind of turning their head and help position he can really set guys up from there in a way that some of the other guys who kind of like to work to that spot in the upper paint like are just not going to be able to and that's really what was playing with the five out that was what was very impressive and giddy really keyed their run it had, the warriors were down by 20 early as they are in like seemingly every game on the road they got back into contact in the third and then giddy blitzed them taking a six point game up to 13 he basically scored or assisted on every point Shea is out of the game at this point and he get, even got a blow by on Clay Thompson on the perimeter who was probably pressing up on him too much uh the other thing that they love to do for Josh Giddy is get him the ball either as an inbounder or just getting the ball at the elbow with a live dribble or in the post with a live dribble and just let him stand there and just pick the defense apart with passing. They like to run a lot of split cuts, a lot of back doors even for Shea. Obviously, Isaiah Joe's another guy who can get open there. And then like Jalen Williams is really, this is the, the big Jalen Williams, is shooting the ball extremely well. I hated his game in summer league. I still, it's seared in my mind that he was only four of 16 around the rim in summer league and i was like this guy has no athleticism like how's he gonna survive well the answer is he's shooting the shit out of the ball lately and he has to be guarded out there like dream on green had to close out in a bunch of time even a uh, late clock on a baseline out of bounds they had him come off a screen going to his right and like shot a fadeaway spot up off a baseline out of bounds like going to his right leg kick 
Uh, he, Draymond ran him off the line. He stepped in and just nailed a long two as well. Uh, today's game against San Antonio, he, on an inbounds, he sets a back screen and then like footwork backs up to the three point line and, and guns a three. So he's actually becoming a real shooting threat out there. And he does enough defensively. You brought up that Watfo on him and his insane charges per minute. Uh, so he's enough to be decent defensively. I mean, he's not going to block shots, but he gives you some rim protection with the charge and and communicating and stuff like that so on the charge front yeah yeah. In that Spurs game, Jalen Williams took over the charge taken lead from Kenrich Williams and Jalen Brunson being out during the stretch has has maybe opened it up even further for Jalen Williams than we expected. Yeah, and you mentioned Kenrich Williams out for the season with the elbow issue and Jalen Williams has been a big reason why they've been able to handle his absence as has Dario Sharp, who was also excellent in that Warriors game. He's been a, a really nice fit for them. They actually got some assets from the Suns and got a better player in charge and I think they should probably actually re-sign him. he fits exactly into how they they want to play as a backup center and that's really where charge has probably had his most success recently so yeah OKC looked like they were going to be sunk we didn't know how long Shea was going to be was going to be out they blew out Utah in a game that he missed and then he came back and and they did get completely destroyed on the second night of a back-to-back in Phoenix without Shea Gilders Alexander but other than that they've won five of their last six and uh, they won in New Orleans in blowout fashion and then Shea didn't play in the back-to-back in San Antonio and they took care of San Antonio pretty easily as well and mm-hmm. yeah good there could be some chaos uh that OKC Brooklyn game on Tuesday could be real fun yeah and of course we're doing the NBA strategy stream for New Orleans and Lakers the swap bowl every New Orleans win over the Lakers counts double as it did last year too that was uh, and it was really New Orleans I think who like a win for New Orleans kind of ended things for the Lakers last year and then they shut everyone down and the New Orleans pick ended up being better all right we got three teams left here I think though that two hours and 18 minutes of recording time is probably enough for me this evening so we'll, we'll get to uh we'll, hey definitely if you're listening on the free pod subscribe for sure you can get blazers rockets and spurs later in the week for subscribers only we hold it back only the best stuff for subscribers but seriously subscribe uh we're uh coming up on the playoffs here and uh we will be doing every playoff game and most of those will be for subscribers only talk to y'all soon it's time to take your career to the next level with over 150 graduate degree programs the catholic university of america located in washington dc provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person mind body and spirit whether your professional calling is in engineering nursing social work or any of our other exceptional degree programs encounter the best of everything that catholic university has to offer and discover the best in yourself learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash grad admissions